From Warren NYC, it's Effort, a show based on our live storytelling series where female leaders and entrepreneurs share raw and personal stories of challenges they've overcome in their careers and what they learned in the hustle to achieve success. We're Warren. We plot with other women-owned businesses to take over the world. <laughs> We're actually a mission-based creative agency that works directly with female-run companies, campaigns, and products because we know that when women succeed, everyone succeeds. girly ever be an insult all the women i know are ones moving culture what would happen if we all would leave with a little less aggression more femininity we have to value girls more than their looks the biggest threat is a girl with the book the system must make room for all that we do we've been bleeding each month till we gave birth to you so today you're going to hear a story by kieran gandhi who goes by madam gandhi and i'm so excited to share her story meeting kieran was like electric connection just so inspired by her and, and her demeanor and um you, you'll you'll get a taste of that when you hear the story to give you a little more background on kieran she grew up in manhattan on the upper east side in new york she has an mba from harvard she went to georgetown university she's toured as a drummer with mia and she now has now she's touring for her new ep voices which is a five song album that is incredible and you can listen to it on Spotify and basically anywhere that you can listen to music. So what you're about to hear is a bit different from the style of the podcast that we've launched thus far. We're trying something new. Um, We had Kieran in studio and recorded with her having a conversation. Really chill. So you're getting a very raw, super real story right now and we're excited to share it with you. Carolyn, I know that you were really excited to meet her too and got totally pumped about the drums once you found out more about her (laughs) fangirl is an understatement so much so that i signed up for drum lessons myself (laughs) (laughs) all right so the first one coming up right now is kieran gandhi drum roll here's kieran so my name is Kieran. I grew up here in New York City, and I grew up playing the drums um, when I was 11 years old. And I loved being in New York because we had access to all the best music, you know, all the best bands would come through. I remember being like 14, 15, always buying tickets to either the bands that were just like top 40 type things or, you know, TV on the radio or the Dirty Projectors um, Thievery Corporation. I mean, I used to love, even at the time, going into the Apple Store, and on the Apple Store, they used to have all the iPods on display, and each of the iPods had playlists on them. So I used to go there for, like, hours at a time and just listen to music that um, Apple had curated and, like, just download them or whatever. And I used to Mm -hmm. DJ. um, I took lessons at Scratch DJ Academy, which at the time was in Union Square, so it was, like, really easy for me to go from home, which was in uh, the Upper East Side, to go learn at Scratch. I, I went to an all-girls private school in the Upper East Side. I went to Chapin. And so because there were no boys, like, overshadowing me or trying to compete with me, I just felt like it was such a nurturing environment to be the go-to music person. Um, I would always be making playlists or CDs for my friends, for my teachers even. Um, my teachers were so cool. Like, they would kind of encourage me and play, take my CDs and play them if we had, like, open study time or something. They'd be like, oh, well, Kieran made a mix. Like, we can do our homework and, like, play music or... I'd play the drums at school uh, or DJ parties where, like, it would be, like, co-ed parties at school. It was so funny to think about it, but I loved doing it. 
Um, but academics always live really separately from music. You know, if you were smart, it means like you weren't music oriented. And if you were music oriented, it meant like you probably were bad at school. So that's why you're music oriented. But, um, you know, I had top grades. I ended up going to Georgetown because my family was very politically active. The home I grew up in was in Eleanor Roosevelt's home um, on the Upper East Side. And so my family was very uh, integrated in politics. And my mom especially loved women's history, you know, both in India and in the States. So that's why I went to Georgetown. But Georgetown was broy, you know, to use your word, Nicole. Georgetown was the definition of broy. Wasn't the tech time in 2007, really wasn't. Um, but that pervasive culture, I had never really been exposed to it, where I felt like women's voices were actively quieted. And it's very difficult to combat something that's culturally normative. It's very difficult to speak up and say, like, this is weird that all of us are getting ready in our dorms, like, putting on all this makeup and, like, pre-gaming to then go to some, like, frat kind of party. There was no frats at Georgetown, but that was the vibe and drink shitty beer and like wait in line outside in the cold when like I know better beer than this I have better music than this I can afford all of these things so I don't need to go like the benefit is always like oh well it's free alcohol it's like okay it costs like $12 to get drunk like we can do it ourselves (laughs) Um, and growing up in New York City like to go to all the music venues I had a fake ID since I was really young you know so it wasn't so the, the vibe for going out for me was always around music. It wasn't around getting drunk or trying to hook up and stuff. I love that stuff, you know, I did. I was a little mischievous when I was a kid, but but I didn't like when it, the energy was like the men are in control. I really hated that. And it was a little bit weird, the sentiment. Uh, no, it was a lot weird. But in, as a kid, as like an 18-year-old, I was like, isn't it, like, gen- earnestly, like, isn't it weird that we think it's okay that the boys are, like, trying to get us drunk so then they can hook up with us? Like, like why do I have to be tricked into hooking up? Like, I'm down. Like, like I'm, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, that kind of removing myself of my own sexuality <laughs> was yeah. so, um, it was so problematic. You know, and I didn't like that we weren't talking about like who we wanted to hook up with. Like, why don't we get him drunk so that we can hook up with him? He's beautiful, you know, like that. Where was that? Um, so very quickly, I kind of self-selected out, and I remember being a sophomore, super, um, super depressed. I was like very overweight. You know, I'd eaten like so much because it like was more fun to just like eat amazing chocolate or like pizza or drunkenly whatever you do in college. You know. I remember, um, yeah, I remember that sophomore year, and I just remember being like, I need to stop doing this other stuff that I don't like doing because it's making me have these unhealthy behaviors, which is to find joy in eating badly. And I remember that feeling so clearly, and I remember feeling always subpar. Um, and I was like, what do I love to do? Like, what's my home base? And I was like, dude, I love to play the drums. I love to go hang out with other musicians, and I love to do well in school, and that's pretty much it. And I love my feminism. I love my women's studies classes. And so I really started to trim the fat. And I think, you know, throughout the rest of the story that I'm going to keep telling, that's always the, the theme, you know, really trimming the fat. And as a passionate person and as someone who knows that I can do well in many different situations because I grew up that way, you know, being the, the straddling being from India and from the state, straddling being from the Upper East Side, but really never wanting to hang out in that environment and always wanting to hang out with talented musicians, um, straddling being someone who can, you know, engage with the boys, but feeling far more um, included when I was in more feminist safe spaces. 
um, always this dichotomy. And I think the theme is is really being brave enough to say, I hate this other stuff and I really like this thing. And I don't really care if that's okay with you. It's okay with me. And that's all that matters. And I do think we, especially women, are trained to quiet our inner voice and to say, oh, we must be crazy for thinking that. And it's so intentionally um, woven into our society that if you speak out against something or if you share something that you think feels weird to you, you must be the crazy one. And you'll see that's also the theme that will set up the marathon story, I'll tell you in a little while. But I remember when you take risk in the beginning of any venture, and this is a business podcast, so the theme is very important, when you do trim the fat, when you do focus on what matters to you, you take a big net loss of friends, of money, of um, of maybe even social time with people. You take a big net loss because people are like, oh, she's just doing her own thing. Uh, like, I don't know what's going on with her. She's going through a phase. Or like, oh, man, you know, you're not making any money. That's like kind of later in your life, less college. But every time that I've taken risk that feels right to me, it's always worked out. It's always worked out. So the first example of that is was back to the story when I was in school and it was now the end of sophomore year actually it was the end of junior year I'll skip ahead a little bit but I remember wrapping my sophomore year and just feeling like dang that was a really tough year and I gotta start focusing on music and feminism because that's all I care about that's the thing that makes me happy like I would show up early to the women's studies classes to sit in the front row you know I would show up early to the music venues because I wanted to catch the opening band like you got to pay attention what are the things that you're doing when no one's looking when you have your own time so the best thing that happened to me in junior year was discovering Thievery Corporation and that they went, they were living in D.C. Because I knew them, but I had no idea that they were two DJs from D.C., that they owned a bunch of clubs, that their touring band was the Wednesday band at the lounge. It was extraordinary. And there was like six, seven uh, members of, this, of the band on the stage every Wednesday at this club, and I started going. And I would just stare at the conga player, stare at the drummer, that after like many weeks of going on a Wednesday, they um, they stopped me and they were like, do you want to sit in or like, do you play or why are you so fascinated? And I remember the first time I ever sat in, it was just like a dream, you know? And I think I told this part of the story when I was on the summit, but I can't remember. But I remember when I used to go to 18th Street Lounge, um, there were a lot of women there and the culture was not so good for women because the idea was that same theme of like, oh, well, if you're kind of flirty and sexy, like, they'll invite you backstage and you can, like, smoke weed and have free drinks and all this. And I was like, I know that culture and I know how that goes. And if I participate in it, even though it can benefit me for the short term, like, how fun to party with a man, then I'm seen in a different light as opposed to an equal musician. And that's kind of an unfortunate thing about us as women is, like, even though I would have loved to sleep with one of those beautiful Rasta boys, <laughs> like, I actively didn't because... I knew that it would make it difficult for me to access um, the spaces of being seen as an equal musician. And so I kind of dress more boyishly, you know, present more boyishly or even um, actively not drink so that I was never sloppy in those situations or playing drums off time. That's probably the worst thing you can do. So from there, the biggest risk that I took was really spending almost zero time on Georgetown's campus except for class and going to thievery and going to shows and just being out in the scene. 
And by the time I reached my senior year, I wound up with my own gig at 18th Street Lounge. I used to play every Sunday with the DJ. I was making money as a drummer, which had never happened before. People were coming from all parts of town to catch the show. Um, we built it out. It would be sold out most nights by the time um, I ended, ended my senior year. I got picked up to tour. I played Bonnaroo with Thievery Corporation. I ended up working at their record label for a little while. Um, and I just made so many friends in D.C. who are now, almost 10 years later, dear, dear friends of mine um, because of that risk and putting myself in a place where I was so happy to be there and just so happy to contribute that, like, the quality of the work was extraordinary. My desire to give joy to that community was so much higher. Um, and, and, and then I just got better as a drummer because I was exactly where I wanted to be. Um, my senior thesis ended up being about women in the music industry, you know, my worlds were always just being tied together. The second risk that I took, again on the theme of music, was moving out to LA. And I really wanted to work at a record label, mm -hmm. but the only job I got was an internship. And my family was not so happy about that <laughs> because I think they really wanted me to work in politics or to have a real job, you know. But I had this feeling like if I go to LA and I just work my ass off, it'll be all right. And so I went and it was Interscope, you know, it was a big label, it was Kendrick Lamar, it was all the sort of old school hip hop, Dr. Dre, 50 Cent, Eminem. Um, it was Lana Del Rey, Black Eyed Peas, you know, all these extraordinary artists. Ali Golding was actually one of my favorites too. Um, and I didn't mention this, but I also did my major, I did a math major. And so I remember thinking, like, how can I take my math degree and maybe use it in the music industry to get a job? <laughs> and so my first job, um, I ended up working as this intern. But I remember starting to take data that the label was receiving from Spotify and from YouTube and creating these reports for the digital marketing department and just being like, oh, well, isn't it interesting? Like Kendrick over-indexed in like YouTube views this week or like Lady Gaga is actually underperforming in Spotify. We should really push that, you know, just by the math experience that I had. And so uh, th that's a shorter story, but that's definitely the second example. Um, really feeling like there's something here. I want to make this work and turning an internship into a job that I ended up having for two years at Interscope. The, the piece that I've seen you write about mm -hmm. on how it's so important as an artist mm -hmm. to be a business person, too, yes. and like your frustration with labels totally one benefit is that we do live in an era of of the internet where there is a lot of information online and i do think it's work to do the research and to understand how systems of power in the music industry operate um my personal experience is just by going to it and working in it for many years both with thievery's label which was an independent label and then at interscope which is one of the biggest major labels in the world and just having that experience of like, what's the culture? How do artists actually get signed? How do artists actually get promoted and marketed? Like, is everyone's um, marketing plan very similar? Yes and no. Um, really just understanding how does the business work from an old school perspective? And then who are the leaders in the new, new world? And there is literal information. Like obviously there's knowing exactly how Spotify streams are consumed, exactly how Spotify, um, you know, divides a paycheck, how artists get paid, all these things can be, you can read about that. But in general, if you don't have knowledge, what ends up happening is an asymmetry of information where one party knows something and the other party doesn't. And usually the way that business came in and became such a looked down upon thing is that 
those with the business skills would exploit those with the product. So let's say I'm the artist and I'm making all this incredible music, but I don't know how to get it into the ears of my fans. Um, the business person comes in and is like, oh, hello, sweet artist, like, just make your music and I'll help you make money. And if the business person knows how to make the money, then they have the ability to take advantage of you, which is to say, oh my God, you were making zero last month and this month I got a check for $10,000 for you. And the artist is super stoked because that's a huge uh, jump up, you know. But maybe the business person knows that actually um, we made like $100,000 and I just kept 90% of that. Um, so as an artist, you really do have to put the effort to learn what are we making, how are we making it, where is that money coming from, what are we spending our money on, um, I actually disagree that we should spend all this money on Facebook advertising because my fan base um, tends not to be a Facebook generation. Either they're too young for that, they're all on Snapchat, or they're too old for that, they're all on something else. They need CDs. Um, so I think with business, most people don't trust their gut, especially women are taught, like, you don't know anything. And I think business is, as my dad always says, an exercise in common sense. And I do think that you have the power to question things that you may not seem that's right and also to bring on people who you trust, who can empower your business instead of uh, taking advantage of you. How many female executives did you come across working at Interscope? And I asked I that. I have to be fair and actually say quite a few, which was extraordinary. Um, I think because I was going in with like a really low expectation. And the reason why I had such a positive experience at Interscope is that because when I came in as a young female, I was never trying to compete with older females. I always presented myself as someone who could use mentorship. And I think as soon as you present that way, then the older women, when I say older, I, I don't mean like I, like people who are older than me, you know, whatever, in their 30s, 40s, they, um, they would treat me with um, a desire to mentor me as opposed to being like, ugh, these young girls are so irritating. And when you come in as a young person, if you act like you know too much, and people are going to ignore you. And say, okay, good. If you know everything, please go ahead. Go do it then. But if you come in humble, eager to work, always thinking about how your job is actually to reduce the stress of those around you as opposed to like how much can I receive from this job and you instead say how much can I give to this job, it always ends up working well. Mm -hmm. And that was my attitude and it really served me, especially at Interscope where because there's fewer women than the men, obviously. The men, the women are always encouraged to compete with each other. That's a classic story of what ends up happening when you're in a patriarchal situation. And I remember going to Diana Cass and being like, Diana, you manage MIA, you manage Ellie Goulding, you manage um, Alicia, uh, no, not Alicia, uh, Azalea Banks, you know, um, Rai Rai, all these really cool female artists. Like, what is that like? And she would be like, let's have coffee, I'll tell you. You know, so we'd catch a moment in the middle of the day. She ended up two years later giving me the gig drumming for MIA, you know, just because of that humility that I approached her with. Mm -hmm. Same thing with my job. Brooke Michael ran the uh, digital marketing department. So I was always hungry to, to come to her and be like, I'm working on this. What do you think about this? Do you like this? Is, does this help you? I'll stay late. Oh, of course I'll cancel whatever I had tonight. Like, I'll get your, like, I have your back. And so then they're like, oh, this is someone who's real, like, who's really about their hard work. They mean what they say and they're good at it. I want to help them come up. And I think a lot of us have pride in raising the next generation because then we feel like we have a stake and we're doing our part. But as a young person, when you come in, you think you know everything. It's it's really probably the worst worst thing you can do. Mm -hmm. That's dope. Thank you. So awesome. after working at Interscope, did you go 
straight to HBS or did you, how did the MIA connection happen? Yeah, so I remember working at Interscope and I was sort of the end, like I was, I had been two years in and I was getting a little restless. Um, I felt like I was doing well at my job, but I felt like it was at steady state because I was noticing like, wow, every week feels the same. And as soon as you start feeling that way, like that's when you start kind of questioning, so what's next? And I felt like because this was the first time they ever had a digital analyst, there was no career path, very traditionally so. Um, which is probably why I was attracted to it. You know, there wasn't like a next promotion that I can get. Um, so I remember kind of thinking, well, I have two skill sets. Um, and I wasn't thinking about my feminism at that point, really. But I was thinking, like, I'm a drummer and I'm a business person. Like, I'm working on the music industry side. And how can I advance both of those things? One of those things would be great. That's kind of how I was thinking. I was like, one or the other. Um, and in LA, because the music industry is everywhere, I felt like I had a lot of my friends who were touring as musicians on like very well-known projects. And I was so inspired by that. I was like, what? Like you're an amazing, adorable hipster friend of mine, like in Silver Lake, and you're about to go on tour with some major artist for like three months. Like that's so awesome, you know? I felt like my drumming was good enough to kind of get a similar gig, but I wasn't um, branding myself that way. I was branding myself as like an industry person. Mm -hmm. And so I remember just kind of thinking about that. So I did two things. One is I was like, well, I want to advance my, my business. So my boss at Interscope had an MBA, and I was like, I want to apply for my MBA. Maybe get a more flexible um, skill set when it comes to business. How cool would it be to come back and be the one who empowers artists? Do the opposite of the information asymmetry thing I just told you. And then the second is, how do I become a drummer who's really taking my career to the next level? MIA was signed to Interscope, and I remember just being like, she needs a drummer on her stage. Maybe someone who's brown, someone who's you know, young, female, yes. will be great. Awesome. And Diana, who was her product mar manager on the Inter Interscope side, said, um, okay, like, send me a video. I won't tell anyone. Like, just let's submit it and see what happens. And then we did that, and MIA loved the video. And uh, at the same time, I had been going through all the rigmarole of the GMAT and applying to schools, and I applied, and I ended up getting into Harvard. So that was in, like, March of that year, 2013. And then I left Interscope, and then... MIA hit me up in the summer before business school and was like, okay, we really love you. Like, let's go. We really want to have you on the tour. And originally the dates were just in the summer. So it was actually perfect because I was going to do this big summer tour with them, then move to Boston and start school. But then, oh my God. And then I'll never forget this. Then all the other dates came in for the fall. And I remember being like, dang, like, this is crazy. How am I going to do school and tour at the same time? Um, and in the spirit of female mentorship, I remember having a beer with DJ Reka, who's a very well-known bonga DJ here in New York City. And she was like, she looked me dead in the eye, and she's like, dude, do both. You gotta just figure it out. So to return to the theme of the original um, story that I told at Georgetown, it was just trimming the fat again. HBS and drums, you know, school and drums, school and drums. I didn't do anything else. I was really not interested in like all the bullshit networking events that they had at school. I was really not interested in any of the parties. I was really not interested in like any of the group meetings. <laughs> I had to just do me, you know. What did um, what did that yeah. entail? Like, were you doing classes while you're on tour, like from away, or like well, how did you juggle that? All of the that? shows were one-offs. Mm -hmm. All of the shows were one-offs, which means like at any given moment, the max on the road you're doing is like three to four days. And so what I would do is like finish up class on Friday and duck out, go play Poland, come back, go play the UK the next weekend, come back, you know, 
play Argentina over Thanksgiving, come back, Mexico City over um, Columbus Day weekend, which was another blessing, and come back. <laughs> like, all the dates That's just it. kept working. That's That's crazy, um, yeah. The only time it was really wild, I'll never forget, was November, the week of November 13th of, la- of 2013. And Maya had put out her record, um, Matangi. And so we had four shows in New York City, three Terminal 5 and one record release party in Brooklyn. So I remember Monday, I went to class. Then 2, 2 p.m., um, I went to Boston Logan Airport, flew to LaGuardia, 4 p.m. landed, went to the Terminal 5, sound checked, played the show, um, went to the hotel for like a couple hours till like 3 in the morning, then went to LaGuardia, took the 5.30 a.m. Delta shuttle, went back to Boston, went to class, did class. Then Tuesday, went back to New York, played the show. Wednesday morning, fly back to class, do class. Wednesday afternoon, fly back to New York, do the third show. Thursday morning, fly back to Boston. Boston, then back to New York that night again. And then we had, um, oh, it was so wild. That was so wild. I can't, I'm just like thinking about that right now. You can do anything you want to do. But the reason why it was so important um, is that I was focused. You know, I was really focused and I felt so happy. And I think when you're doing what you love, um, it feels good to just defend those things with your life. And I was very diligent. I never had a drink. I would never, like, do anything that would distract either one of those things or make me like too hungover to miss a flight or something like that and that's tough on the road because obviously you're stressed so like your go-to is just like to want to numb yourself for a second or to also be like it's free we're partying like i drum for mia i'm at school like this is awesome like let's drink but you can't do that if you have to study for a pretty serious degree and be coherent the next day um so so that's how i did it and what did you what was the biggest challenge during that time? Was it just the scheduling? Was it being tired? Like, I think the biggest challenge is always feeling mediocre at both, you know, mm-hmm. never feeling like I'm really killing it. You know, it was just like, I think I got through the first year of Harvard with, uh, with like the minimum grades that you can get before they kick you out. Like one more bad grade, I would have. They would have asked me like take a gap year and like figure your shit out, but I was so lucky. <laughs> I I really like just slid right in, but and it was worth it because like at the end of the day, my job is not to be number one at HBS to then get the number one consulting firm, right? So like you have to be set like aware of what's your goal, and so I really focused the classes that I studied for. I only focused on the ones that I really felt could help me, and obviously you know things like. There were two classes that I did really badly in the first semester when I did the MIA gig. One was finance and one was called TOM, which is tech and operations management. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just I just genuinely was like, dang, this is so um, industry specific. It's not like there's high level learnings that you can take away from these classes. They were the most that were very traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just kind of let them go, you know, and I just accepted that, like, those weren't going to be my strongest. And it was a clever trade off because then the other three were very relevant to what I was doing. Um, entrepreneurship class, marketing class, mm-hmm. um, a classic a class on organizational behavior. Like, you know, how do you really run a company and be emotionally intelligent? Yeah. Yeah. And then I was playing drums for MIA and it was it was such a, a such a perfect balance. So cool. So you talked a little bit on the boat about how you started to fall in love with running. Yes. So can you tell us about that? Yes. I remember being in my second year of business school. I didn't have the MIA tour and I was so depressed. Now, it wasn't. Luckily, I actually wasn't depressed. I was like stoked to just be in one place. But I definitely wanted something to replace that. And Boston, at least being at school, was not a very musical town. I didn't have access to a studio because it's not like there were studios at HBS's campus. And so I remember 
being very inspired instead by the runners in Boston. You know, whether it be snowing, raining, hailing, they're always out running. It was so inspiring, so raw. And I was really attracted, quite honestly, to the undeniable achievement that running represents. Because whether you've run three miles, six miles, eight miles, it doesn't matter who you are. Like, tall, short, gay, straight, black, white, male, female, like, it doesn't matter. That's your achievement. No one can touch that. And I just loved that. I felt like, wow, if I can run three miles, like, I'm killing it, you know? I could barely run half a mile. So I used to go slowly. I used to walk most of it and then, like, try to run it, get some good Spotify playlists. And eventually, I got good enough to sign up for the London Marathon. So I signed up for it. It was April of 2015. It was the culmination of my two years of business school. My dad and brother came out. Two of my really good friends were running with me. They both had run marathons before, so I was happy to, like, have the sisterhood of them kind of, like, cheering me on. Yeah. And then I realized that I'm getting my period right at the start line. And I was just hoping that it would come two days later or that, uh, yeah, I would, I would just time it perfectly. But unfortunately, timing was not on my side. And... You know, in the spirit of just following your intuition and not really letting others, the uh, the judgment of others cloud your decision and just really trusting what feels right for you. So, dude, like, pad a tampon, a cup, like, all that stuff when I'm trying to run 26 miles. Like, I'm sure other women do it because I've never heard of any other option, but, like, that sounds awful to me. Mm-hmm. And my period is so uncomfortable. You know, it's very, like... Um, slows me down and it's I usually get a lot of really bad cramps and I just usually want to just chill that's why I always skipped out running on my period that seemed like the worst combination of things to do to run while you're bleeding like hell no but I was so excited for my marathon I didn't want anything to mess it up so I said listen I'm gonna run in a way that I know which is with none of these products I'm just gonna run I'm gonna run in these amazing orange tights that match my amazing breast cancer care blazer with my amazing orange shoes and my headband and just go for it and I really felt like it was the choice that I was prioritizing my own comfort over the comfort of others and I knew that in itself was radical and so the more I ran I remember starting to show blood and feeling like wow this is actually so empowering this is so badass like women bleed all the time all around the world every day and we don't give each other props for the fact that we're actually expected to participate in normal society without sorry without um saying anything about it it's just like ridiculous and the more i ran i realized well i had the privilege of rejecting my own shame that day millions of world girls and women around the world do not and I wrote, I wrote about that. You know, I wrote about running each mile, the significance of running a marathon and achieving something so powerful while bleeding, while being in the most, like, female state of our month, you know, and how we don't talk about periods and that actually sets so many girls back because they don't have the products they need to go to school, to, to work comfortably. Even the marketing here in the States is about concealing and how to be sexy as opposed to, like, how to be your best self and be comfortable. It's so... Um, oppressive Mm -hmm. and the story went viral it really went completely viral and it went viral actually later on that summer after I had graduated the New York Times was writing about it BBC News had me on their like morning news I remember just having to get really good at talking about something that just felt intuitive to me that I didn't have the vocabulary to explain but I knew mattered and 2015 because of that because of rupee chorus bleed on instagram because of so many women who've been in this movement but just didn't get the press it deserves 
Cosmo, everyone was writing about it. 2015 was like NPR, the year of the period. Um, and it was this big culmination of the themes we've explored in this podcast already, taking risk, going with your gut, having the bravery to like defend your instincts and then explain it instead of feeling defensive. You know, anytime I felt defensive, I was like, huh, like that's obviously just because I can't explain this thing that I'm sure is right because my gut tells me it's right. So I would just, if I had a bad interview, I would just take a moment and be like, how do I explain this more intelligently, more based in logic as opposed to based in emotion? Because there's something here, you know, Mm -hmm. and I really want to be the one who's good at explaining it. And the Harvard degree helped with that tremendously. You know, HBS is all about distilling ideas into a coherent thought. So to do that with feminism seemed like the perfect use of a HBS degree. I'm not even saying that farcibly. Like, I really mean that. No, that's awesome. Um, How did you feel coming out of that race when just directly afterward mm-hmm. did you feel i felt so good i first of all everyone tells you that you're supposed to hit a wall at mile 20 which means that you probably start walking you feel a little bit depressed you feel like you can't do it and so even in the terms of the cheer points they put the most amount of fans in that spot because that's supposed to be like in boston it's called heartbreak hill you know it's a known thing and this is your first marathon first marathon yeah. bleeding yeah. You know, yeah. like <laughs> the whole thing yeah um <laughs> But everything worked. Like, my two friends, first of all, they're a lot faster than me. So I thought for sure they would want to, like, be more competitive and get their best time and, like, that we would split up eventually. And most people who run as a group always say you kind of, like, split up and meet at the end. We had a plan to meet somewhere at the end. They stayed with me the whole time. And we didn't stop running once. We literally did not walk one time. Like, I don't even know how that's possible because I've done way shorter runs in the mile in the time leading up to it. But... And I always had to walk at some point. Mm-hmm. We did not walk in the entire 26.2 miles, which even saying that now, like, I'm so proud of that because it was like, it's a marathon, you know, mm-hmm. it's a marathon. When when you were running with your two friends, did you tell them or did they notice at the very beginning of the race that you got in your period or was it just something that Yeah, happened? and they know me. They know that I do absurd stuff. Like, they just thought I was just being me. Like, okay, dude, you're wild. But like, yeah fine you know because my friend before actually she had run a marathon the year before and how it was like on the second or third day or fourth day or whatever she actually ran with a little extra tampon right but she didn't have any pockets in her marathon apparel so she put it in the sports bra between her skin and her sports bra to this day she has a scar that's the shape of the length of the ob tampon because it cut into her breast while she was running no right which makes total sense like if you're putting something on your skin you're gonna chafe for 26 miles running like that um, and that story stuck with me. I think it was part of the reason why I just chose to bleed because I was like, there's no intelligent option here. And until our world confronts that we go through this and we start building better options for all of us, you need to deal with my blood. Yeah, like that's so real. And the symbolism of it, I'm running a marathon. It's already very empowering. Um, I've done things in my life that I'm proud of, you know, touring the world uh, as a young musician felt very empowering. And so I think because I was sitting on these achievements that made me feel um, uh, proud of my own happiness doing the marathon and having a pride associated with my own run made all the judgment of everybody else impermeable mm-hmm. like if you're good with yourself really not, no one can mess with you yeah. and that the theme there too of like when I went to Interscope when I used to drum and go to HBS at the same time when I ran the marathon like the three themes there were having this like intuition other people tell me why I'm wrong me not listening, me doing what I think is best, and then it 
working even like way million times better than I even thought it could work you know like holy shit yeah and even today when like I feel insecure about something or I feel defensive about something I feel jealous of somebody else I always know it's because I'm not good with myself Mm -hmm. that's the check it has nothing to do with anybody else this album the her you yes there's even like a mantra in it yes basically about female leadership, mm-hmm. you know, it was. Yeah. It's uh, not. It's so I perform as Madame Gandhi, as yeah. you know, in my record this year that I put out, which we've listened to, I think, about a hundred times. Oh, I'm so now. honored. Thank <laughs> we so love much. it actually. I'm so it's happy. Great. It was our theme song during pre-election. Oh yes. yes, that's what I wanted it to be. I wanted it to be everyone's pre-Hillary anthem, and now mm-hmm. we'll have to just be um, an anthem about the world that we want to live in. Mm-hmm. Um, but this song that I made, you know, we made it probably over the course of like a day and a half. You know, it was very inspired. It's called her and it's it goes if you feel it in the air then appoint her and the reason why i wrote that is because i feel like so many times we have incredible women that we can put into positions at you know a company a ceo um really anything but we always let our own misogyny and our own prejudice get in the way and cloud our judgment so intuitively we'll be like oh yeah she's the obvious choice for the job but then patriarchal norms and misogyny that we've all internalized makes us question either ourselves as the leader if we're the ones who need to be appointed or the person that we're trying to put on and we like create all these hypotheticals about why we shouldn't appoint her like oh well maybe she'll get pregnant so annoying like okay so what build the system around her being pregnant fuck you Mm -hmm. and or like we shouldn't appoint her because maybe she'll be too emotional we shouldn't appoint her because she's done all the jobs like we shouldn't have like like just ridiculous reasons we shouldn't appoint her because she's too beautiful maybe she'll distract everybody like all these reasons it's just so unfair it's Mm -hmm. so unfair and and then the next line that i wrote is um, if you want me to obey, then I'll join her. And I wrote that line inspired by a really old Margaret Atwood book that I read when I was a kid called The Handmaid's Tale. And it just is this alternative universe of women living together and like birthing each other. And it's it's super out there. But this idea that like if you don't appoint women, if you keep letting your prejudice get the better of you, we're literally just going to leave. And I mean, it's so funny because that's happening. I just came from a meeting and I spoke there last week at The Wing, which is an all-women's co-working space. Like, the more women get together and realize, like, okay, you're not going to put us on, uh, enough's enough. We have all the talent right here. We're just going to start putting each other on. That's where the power lies. So that's what this idea is, her. Um, Don't let your prejudice get in the way. Don't let your own insecurities get in the way. Go for it. Support each other. What advice would you give to, let's say women who who do feel this this misogyny or this oppression or 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 just feel like this you know some kind of a subtle subtle boundaries you know that they can't surpass um what would you say to them about about kind of getting through that i think there's three levels the first for me was always to be able to take my emotion the thing that hurt me when, you know, when the guy at, like, the frat house, like, I was like, this feels bad. Like, I don't want to be in here. Let me analyze that. Dissecting that emotion and then, like, channeling it from, like, your gut and your heart into your head. That's what I do on a daily basis. Like, anytime I experience sexism or something that gives me that, like, uh-oh feeling, I try to explain it with logic so that then I can either deal with it, explain it to the person who's creating that problem, or just realize that I need to leave. So just the first thing is like intellectualizing the problem or listening to podcasts like this or some of the leading thinkers on these issues so that you can get equipped with how to explain these daily sexisms that happen with logic. Mm-hmm. Then the second thing is to analyze like can you communicate? I'm actually really glad you asked that because one 
lesson that I really wanted to, t- to say was the power of and the bravery in saying something. The HBS degree really taught me that, that in, in, they always say in the absence of information, negativity fills the void. And so I want women who feel upset about something, maybe to pull the male coworker over or the person who's causing the oppression, have the bravery to say, hey, like, I need to talk to you about something. Like, this doesn't feel good for me. I don't like this. Um, it ho- it's holding me back because of X, Y, and Z reason. It's preventing me from being productive for X, Y, and Z reason. Maybe you don't do it intentionally, but this you can't do this because if you do this to the next woman over and the next woman, maybe we'll all leave. And the third is that if it's truly oppressive, it's truly toxic, just leave. Because if you're good at what you do, like either they'll fight for you to change the system or you're sending a signal that that's our, it's an antiquated way of behaving. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me reflect on all this. Hell yeah, this is great. I'm glad that you're doing this podcast, and I can't wait to listen to the lessons of other women who spoke on that effort as well. Absolutely. If you live in D.C. or New York City, or have a friend that you think would benefit from attending Effort, you can come see these stories in person, meet the storytellers, and meet incredible women just like you to support you and your hustle. Effort is completely free, and you can sign up on our website at worn.nyc forward slash radio. That's worn.nyc forward slash F-I-T radio. Our show is produced by Carolyn Rush, Nicole Corbett, and Leela Feldmeyer with sound recording and mixing by Nicholas Quasi-Herd.